Amen. Friend, good morning, church. It is amazing to be in the house of the Lord, is it not, even on a rainy day? Amen. Praise God for the rain, shows God's grace and his mercy towards us, uh, and such abundance of it. Uh, it just demonstrates his abundant mercy and grace towards us. Uh, God saying, Christina, man, we're going to miss you guys. I wish you didn't have to go, but I'm so glad that you get to go. <laughs> Uh, and hopefully time will slow down before June uh, and that we can enjoy you guys even more before you take off. Um, man, it is so good to be here. And uh, God, our God is such a great and amazing God. The, I mean, it wasn't amazing to see all, all these beautiful little kids that we had up front as we prayed um, this morning. It's such a testimony to God's faithfulness uh, and his goodness. It's been an answer to prayer. All these youth, these little kids that we've got here uh, such, in such abundance. And um, it is great. And I praise God for it. And as a community, uh, we should be aware of who they are uh, to help impart life and wisdom and guidance as, we walk, as they walk uh, in this crazy world that we live in. Things that we, have, me growing up, never had to deal with, much less now with these kids as they grow up, uh, the fight that they will have. Uh, before them. Uh, we should gird them up, keep praying for them, constantly lifting them up in prayer. It's the most powerful thing that we can do uh, for our kids. So we are in Genesis chapter 24. It's the longest chapter in Genesis. We are not going to make it all through 67 verses this morning. We are, thankfully, be splitting this chapter in two parts, and then Lord willing, next week, Joe will take take uh, part two, and thanks for coming back, and not staying there in Macedonia. <laughs> uh, so you, if you are joining us for the first time, again, welcome. Uh, we are um, going through the book of beginnings, or the book of Genesis, as we continue our current series on foundations. Uh, we're currently looking at the life of Abraham, and this week and next, we're going to look at those events that are at the near end, the tail end of his very and extremely blessed life. The last couple of weeks, we've talked about how there are, we see types, or pictures, or shadows that point us to an ultimate reality, which is the fulfillment of these types that we see. Throughout the narratives, there are people and events that point us to Jesus Christ. For this wonderful message that God has miraculously kept for us, is a message of a Savior, from Genesis all the way through to the very end in chapter 22 of Revelation. And now, what I want to look at before we jump into the chapter is talk about, just real briefly, uh, an interpretive model, and how when we read and approach Scripture, uh, there are different ways to be able to interpret what we're reading. Uh, one of those is looking at types, or shadows, that we've talked about. But these types and this interpretive model uh, has been, unfortunately, been abused over time to the point where when we look at every single thing in Scripture, it's turned into a type that really shouldn't be. And allegories are made, and it's turned into some weird mystical reality that's not really there. And so many, many people have shied away from using, looking this, this, using this interpretive model. And so some helpful guidelines are needed when we determine what people or events actually point to Jesus or point to aspects within the new covenant that Jesus confirmed through his death and resurrection. And one of the guidelines that we're going to be looking 
is to see, is, is it fulfilled or shown to us, revealed to us in the New Testament? Is there a fulfillment of that type that's contained within Scripture? For as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 15, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So as you look at the text this morning in Genesis 24, there are types contained within this narrative that point to the ultimate reality. And we are able to, through God's grace, able to look back through these scriptures by the light of the gospel and be able to see these types that point to who? That point to Jesus. The word himself. When he explained to those disciples as he walked along the road to Emmaus, we are told that Jesus said, in the, be- in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so my prayer is that after we go through it, and as we go through this chapter in Genesis and the rest of the scriptures, that we will see Jesus revealed, illuminated to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, done through the wonderful results of the death and resurrection. So before we take a look at the chapter, let me introduce you to these types that we see. We have in these characters, it's the kind of the who, what, where, and when, the who's in Genesis 24, and who they point to. So we have Abraham is in our narrative in Genesis 24, and he points to as God the Father. Isaac, the promised son, as we see, points to Jesus Christ. The unnamed messenger that we have in 24, in Genesis 24, points to us as the Holy Spirit. And Rebecca points us to the bride of Christ. Of course, all types, they're just pictures that point to the ultimate reality. These types that we see are not the ultimate one. I'm not saying that Abraham is the God, of God the Father. What I'm saying is in the record of these events that take place in Genesis 24, he is a type that points us to God the Father. It gives us a bigger picture of what it represents. And as the case with any narrative, it's best to read, read through it so that we get an overall picture, and then we'll take a thousand-foot view. We'll dive into it. And I use the fancy word narrative on purpose rather than the word story uh, because this isn't a story. In our culture, we use the word story, and it kind of refers to like fairies and fairy tales and unicorns and Santa Claus and everything else. But these are true events that took place. This biblical narrative means that there is a divine purpose of the record of these events that took place in space and time. So with that in mind, let's get into the living word of God together, and I'm going to read the first 33 verses together to give us the narrative. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and Yahweh had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by Yahweh, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the one may not be willing to follow me to this land. I must say, Then take your son back to the land from which you came. Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. 
Yahweh, God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside by the city of the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Yahweh, God, my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Betuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahar, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether Yahweh had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Betuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped Yahweh and said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness to my master. As for me, Yahweh has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. She went to the man. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of Yahweh. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. So, let's take a look at this whole narrative, this incredible account that just seems like a, 
an account of an interchange between a servant and some woman out in the desert. But there's way more that meets the eye in this passage. Abraham, we're, we're told, is old in verse 1, extremely old. Not only is he old, but he's well advanced in years, emphasizing this fact. He's 140-ish years old. And we can gather this from two things. One, we are told that the promised son Isaac was born to Abraham when he was 100 years old. And if you skip ahead in this chapter, and I so strongly encourage you to do so, read ahead in the word. It's really good. Get to chapter 25, and we are told that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. So at this point in the narrative, Isaac is about to turn 40 years old. There are some other markers of time to keep in mind that help add to this context. For since the last chapter, in chapter 23, it's been 13 years since Sarah has died. You have Isaac and Abraham alone together. Abraham has been in the land for Canaan for 75 years. The narrator, who is the author, Moses, through the power of the Holy Spirit, provides us, readers of the text that was captured 3,500 years ago, he provides us with some additional insights into this narrative, additional insights that can only be given by the omniscient one, the God of the universe, the all-knowing one, so here, in this very first verse, we have an incredible truth shown to us that it is Yahweh who has blessed Abraham in all things. Yahweh, the personal name of God, the personal name of God which is presented to us in our English Bibles. You may notice you have a cap capitals L-O-R-D in your, in your words. That's showing to us the personal name of God. It's revealed in Genesis 165 times and over 6,500 times from Genesis to the Italian prophet Malachi, or Malachi. By God revealing himself as Yahweh, it declares many things, one of which is God's intention. His intention to make himself known to his creation, to us. It reveals his perfectness. It reveals that he is everlasting, that he is intimate and loves us and loves us dearly. Because this is God's personal name, many Jews will refrain from even saying the name. Instead, they will say something along the lines of Hashem in Hebrew as the name, or use Adonai as, or Lord, just so that God's name could never reach the level of being so common that we would, they would fail to hold it in reverent awe. So I encourage you to do so as the same. When you see these capital letters, L-O-R-D, just stand in awe of who, that he, God of the universe, has chosen to reveal himself to us. Amen. And just sit and meditate on that. It is, it was beautiful. It's wonderful. When God reveals himself to us as Yahweh, it speaks not only of his self-existence, meaning that he has no beginning and no end, for he alone is the eternal one. But it speaks to him as being active and present in our lives. It speaks of his power and of his intimate, perfect love for us. Yahweh, who is merciful, full of grace, slow to anger, and abounding in chesed, his steadfast, faithful, covenant love. The same God that Abraham knew is the same God that cares for each 
one of you. He is the only one that knows every single thing about you. He knows the things you're going through. He knows the struggles you're dealing with. He cares desperately for you. And as the eternal one, he does not change. If he were to change, that would make him less than God, less than perfect, because the change presumes some sort of inadequacy. Yahweh does not change. I encourage you to turn, scroll, flip over to the letter of James, James chapter 1, verse 17. And I love this verse. If you have a perfect verse, this might be it for me. Margo and I have chosen, had chosen this verse for our wedding service 23 years ago. And it's been such a comfort when, we, when I read this, when I see it, because it speaks of God's perfect nature to his goodness, to his real fancy word, immutability, his inability to change. And it shows his love towards us. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. As the Father of lights, meaning that as creator of the universe, the one who has determined the number of the stars, who has each given them a name, loves you. I'll show you this picture. This may look like a Jackson Pollock painting or some wonderful work from our preschoolers, but what this is, is this is a picture taken by the James Webb telescope. This telescope is flying outside of the Earth, about, estimated about a million miles from Earth. And it's peering into the constellation of Aquarius, into a, for us, looks like a dark spot. And if we were to zoom in, and there's so much going on in this picture, I don't have time to explain everything, but I want to zoom in on the bottom right of this picture. If we were to zoom in onto this, this picture is a clump. All of those are galaxies. Our galaxy, the one Earth sits in, is spinning around in, the Milky Way, they estimate is 100 billion stars in that galaxy alone. And what we're looking at is a multitude of galaxies, each containing over billion, 100 billions of stars. So far out there, and they keep going, they keep spinning. Each of these stars are flickering, and they change. They're burning their fuel off as they twirl through and dance through the universe. The one who created all these things, he doesn't flicker. He doesn't change. He never runs out of energy. And the one who has named each one of these stars knows you and desires that relationship with you demonstrated as he revealed his name, Yahweh, to us. Yahweh, the one who has blessed Abraham in every way. Verse 1 continues, And Yahweh blessed Abraham in all things, because he has blessed him by giving him a land and a son in an old age, a place to bury his wife, and gave him abundance of provisions. Verse 2 goes on, And Abraham said to his servant, The oldest of his household, who had who had charge of all that he had. We are not told the name of the servant, as what is about to unfold is not about the messenger or this servant, but is about the absolute greatness and goodness of God and how he is personal 
and involved in every specific detail of life. The servant then takes on an oath while placing his hand, as the scripture says, under my thigh. This placing of the hand, I admit, does seem very strange. <laughs> it's not something that we would, we would do in our culture. But the scripture is pointing to the fact that this unnamed servant puts his hand near the seat of procreation. And what's happening here is that this servant is making a solemn pledge, similar to the process of when the president of the United States, when making public oath, places their hand on the scriptures. Or the process of placing our hand on the Bible if we go in uh, in the court of law, telling us that by this we swear. So by placing his hand at the seat of procreation, especially as this oath is about finding a wife for the son of the promise, it's connecting the promises that God gave to Abraham and the sign of the covenant, pointing to God's chesed, his steadfast, faithful covenant love. Verse 3 says, That I may make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Yahweh, who is the personal God, who is God of heaven and earth, that's referring to his complete and total dominion over absolutely everything. Abraham is asking the servant to commit to this mission at hand and swear by that name, that he is not to find a wife for the son of the promise, for the people of the land, those that we're told in Genesis 9 that are cursed people, that this people, the land, people in the land are servant of servants. So the servant is to go to the land of his family in verse 4, but go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So with any good narrative, we have the who and the what. Now let's take a look at the where. A beautiful map that will show. Oh, yeah, they're great. So down here at the bottom is Israel. Mamre and Hebron is where this oath is being taken place. Abraham says, go to the land of my people and my kindred. And that's way up at the north in Mesopotamia. A journey that's probably about 400, over 400 miles. That would have taken about 30 days, give or take, to travel. And so the servant asks, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And here in verse 6 are the last recorded words of the father of faith. For he ends up dying in the next chapter, about 35 years from this event. See to it that you do not take my son back there. It could be translated as, don't you dare bring my son back there. This is the second stipulation, the second part of the oath that Abraham is making his servant swear to. Isaac is not to leave the promised land. And as we see through the record of Genesis, the promised son indeed never leaves the promised land. And as just an aside too, Isaac is the only one of the patriarchs whose name is never changed, for he alone is the one who has already been named by God. Again, pointing to Jesus is so beautiful, so wonderful. Verse 7, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. Abraham, of course, has been promised by Yahweh the land from the great river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And recall that God himself made the conditions of this covenant of the land. He promised by himself 
that this land would be given to Abraham and his descendants. And this occurred when Yahweh passed between the animals that were cut open and laid aside when he made this agreement with Abraham. Meaning that when, Abraham, when Yahweh walked between those cut animals, stating the conditions of his promise, saying, I alone will keep this promise. And if Yahweh were to not keep his promise, let him be like the cut animals that he just passed through. But we know, and we sang about it, God will never fail. God keeps his promises. It's impossible for him to lie, and he never changes. Continuing on in verse 7, Abraham says, And he, Yahweh, will send his angel before you. This is a, a curious statement. Notice that the English translators didn't include quotation marks in this part of the promise, indicating that this reference to this angel didn't come from God directly. Fascinating. This statement concerning the angel is coming from Abraham himself as evidence of his continued faith in God. Recall that an angel of the Lord appeared to other members of Abraham's household. This angel appeared to Hagar and to Abraham's son Ishmael. The angel appeared to his nephew Lot at the gate of Sodom. The angel of the Lord called out to Hagar again when she and Ishmael were expelled. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham when he was on top of Mount Moriah about to offer Isaac. And he called out not once, but twice. So this interchange, this dialogue, Abraham, is by faith anticipating that God would send his angel to help and assist this process of finding a wife for the chosen son. And he reiterates, you shall not take a wife for my son from there. Why would Abraham be so adamant about not wanting to find a wife for Isaac amongst the people of the land? The people that currently exist in the land that was promised to Abraham. That would be so much easier. So much more comfortable. If Isaac were to get a wife from amongst the people, they would most likely just be assimilated into that culture and float off into the forgotten pages of history. But Abraham is, by faith, seeing that if a wife is found amongst the people of the land, from the land of Canaan, those that will be cursed and will ultimately be removed, a wife needs to be found from outside of the land. We see much later on, much to the dismay of an older Isaac, when his son Esau, who is not of the promised land, goes and gets a wife from the land of Canaan and marries one of the sons of, the Heth, sons of Heth, the Hittite. We'll see later on that Isaac explicitly tells his son Jacob not to take a wife from the people of the land of the Canaanites. Again, Jacob is part of the promised line. Jacob, the son of Isaac, is to go back to the same place where his mother came from. Again, this demonstrates the faith Abraham had in God. That Abraham was anticipating, looking far ahead into the future in light of the promise that Yahweh had given him. The promise made by the Everlasting One is of many descendants, not just one grandchild, but through Isaac, countless ones as numerous as stars in the sky, and as much and as many as the dust that is on the earth. Verse 8, But, Abraham continues saying, If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. What if, as the worst case scenario, the servant gets there, finds the girl, the one that we already know who it is, 
right? We've already had the spoiler alert. This is Rebecca. Genesis 22 has that really odd genealogy phrase at the very end of that chapter where it talks about the 12 sons of Noah, and then Bethuel had this girl, Rebecca. But this girl, if she's unwilling to leave her country, that in which she is familiar with, if she is to leave her family and not travel that 400 miles to go back to a land that she doesn't even know, what then? Verse 8 says, only you must not take my son back there. So the commissioning gets sealed with the terms of the agreement and acknowledged in verse 9. It says, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Verse 10 then gives us insight into this mission that's being sent out to Nahar. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed. At the end of the chapter, we are told that this servant, this unnamed servant, has other men with him. Again, probably the aid in leading this caravan of 10 camels across country over 400 miles. And as they set off, they took all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and they set off for what in the English Standard Version has. I have a little footnote in mind. You may too. That Mesopotamia, that's where they are to set off to. Mesopotamia means the land between two rivers, between the Euphrates and the Tigris. In this area, in the next map that we have, the yellow blob down here is Israel. And that red blob up on top, that is Mesopotamia. That is Aram Naharim, the land between two rivers. That journey, that over 400 miles, is the place that he is, this unnamed servant is to go. And he arrives in verse 11. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. These 10 camels, domesticated camels, were very expensive, and not only the rich would have had these. And this attests the, to the blessing that Abraham had, as well as what it meant when someone would have showed up, not with just one camel, but a whole entourage, 10 camels showing up. It would not have been just a casual entrance outside the city. It most certainly would have been noticed by all these women coming outside of the city to draw water. Between verses 10 and 11, again, a, a contextual clue is given to us. There's 30 day, about 30 days that's taken place between 10 and 11. And, th- and just think through that a little bit. It's 30 days of journeying from Mamre all the way up to Nahor. 30 days of setting up camp, tearing it down, cooking meals, discussing life and the mission that they were on to find this promised son. And when the unnamed servant arrives, the first recorded response of the servant upon reaching this well outside of the city at evening is that he prays. Verse 12, and he said, O Lord, or O Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. His request to Yahweh, now that he has reached the city of Nahor, Nahor, is literally, literally, please make this happen in front of me, is his prayer. And show your chesed, your steadfast, loyal, faithful love to my master Abraham. For he says, behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters and the men in the city are coming out to draw water. Again, contextual clues to the time of day. And that Nahor is not just some backwoods village, but actually a city, perhaps with thick walls and another very large defensive gate to enter into the city. 
Again, I'll encourage you, as you read through Scripture, take your time. Slow down and enjoy what the words that God has given us. They are so beautiful, and there's so much depth to it. And so the servant prays to Yahweh, the one who guided him to this place, and asks a specific prayer to help identify who it is is to be the wife. Of all these women have come out, who is the one to be the wife of the promised son? And he asks, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So the request is that the servant will be offered a drink and the camel's water too. Notice what verse 15 says, before he had finished speaking. This is quite amazing. Before the servant had even finished speaking, evidence that Yahweh was there, that he already was there. Prophet Isaiah says in chapter 65, says before, we're referring to prayer and our interaction with him. Before they call, I will answer. Yet while they are speaking, I will hear. It's an absolutely incredible, again, pointing to the, in, the intimate, intimate nature of our God, that he is there and then he is listening, and there's nothing that can overwhelm him, not even however many people are on earth, seven, almost seven billion people. Out of all of those praying at one time, it doesn't overwhelm God. And nothing's too big, nothing too small for him. The text goes on, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with water, with a water jar on her shoulder. The author, Moses, is the one who is including this information. Keep in mind that the servant has no idea about this information. He doesn't even know the name of the woman, much less the family she's a part of. And so it just happens that of all these women, the one that came out, to get the water, the, wa- the daughter of Bethuel, the granddaughter of Milcah and Nahor, Nahor being Abraham's brother, came out to get her water. There's no coinkydinks in the kingdom of heaven. There's no coincidences. God is in charge and it orchestrates everything and is aware of everything. Recall that this, the original request from Abraham was, seems to be quite generic. was to go find a woman from possibly my clan, Hopefully, there's some of my extended family members that are out there. But this woman that appears is far more than just that. And this woman seems to pass the test, we are told. Again, remember that the servant doesn't know this. We are given that information. In verse 16, we're also given more information about her appearance and that she's not had any sexual relationships with any man. The young woman, it says, was very attractive in appearance. The maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up with the water jar on her shoulder. The text says that she goes down to the spring and came up. Most wells at the time would have been dug down into the ground, pretty massive. They would have laid steps or stairs going down to get to the water source. But notice what it says here, that it's not just a cistern or or holding tank. There's a spring. There's fresh, living water coming out of the ground that she's going down to and coming up to retrieve her and give her water. Verse 17, Then the servant ran to meet her. Before the servant had finished speaking, this attractive young woman comes out of the city with her water jar. 
Of course his servant is going to run out to meet her because that's what he had prayed for. Could we not imagine the excited expectation and thus begins this process of determining, okay, is she the answer to my prayer, Lord? And it says, and the servant said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Quickly, she offers Abraham's servant the drink. There's no record of niceties exchanged. How was your travels? How's the weather today? But she quickly is providing hospitality to one that she doesn't even know. Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they had finished drinking. This is that second half of his request concerning water is answered just as quickly. But she goes well beyond just giving camels a little bit of water to drink. But until they have finished drinking, we are not explicitly told how big Rebecca's jar is to help determine how much water was moved here, but that's not the point. The point is not how much water, how many trips that she made down to the well and back up, back and forth, but that Rebecca went to show hospitality that went far beyond any expectations, just like who she is, like every other aspect of Rebecca. Verse 20 says, She quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Take notice of all these action verbs. Ran quickly, doing this, doing that. This should remind us of the action Abraham had when providing hospitality to the three men who came to his tent outside of Sodom. If we recall that Abraham began in a whirlwind of action to show hospitality to these three men. 21, the servant, the man, gazed at her in silence to learn whether Yahweh had prospered his journey or not. We, of course, will probably laugh at this point in the narrative, but it's only because we as readers, know more about who this young lady is than the servant does. He only has seen her give him water and water his camels. His mission, recall, is to find a bride for Isaac from Abraham's family. So after watering these ten camels, which would obviously require a great amount of effort, and when the camels had finished drinking, in verse 22, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. We'll see next week that this gold ring is not just a ring you put on your hands or your toes, but this ring is actually a nose ring. Here in verse 47, it tells us that the servant Abraham put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. So this gold jewelry that's given, as well as this entourage with these ten camels, all of this is to show the wealth of the servant's master, Abraham. And so the servant says, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, notice that she doesn't name herself. She said to him, I am the daughter of Betuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore in a whore. We can only guess the internal excitement that this servant must have had at hearing this news. That this young woman who has worked with such speed and showed such incredible hospitality is the actual granddaughter of the lone surviving brother of Abraham. Again, there's no quinkydinks in the heaven, in, in, in God's kingdom, or in heaven, for that matter. Verse 25, she added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Then we read in verse 26, The man bowed his head and worshipped Yahweh. After all of this, 
beyond any expectation. His response is the only appropriate response, is to worship Yahweh. The servant, you recall, again, was tasked with just going to Abraham's country in hopes of finding someone as part of his clan, to find a wife for his son. And the servant's prayer was answered even before he finished speaking. We see in this prayer a couple examples on how we ought, can and ought to pray. Contained in the servant's prayer and worship of Yahweh. For we see that he blesses Yahweh. He recalls his goodness and he recalls his character. He praises God for guiding him to the right place. For the prayer in verse 27, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his hesed toward my master. As for me, Yahweh has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself struggling on what to pray, if you feel that your heart is so burdened that you can't even express words, that your mind is just racing and you can't think, God, I don't know what to say, I encourage you. Begin by just praising him. Praise him for his character. Praise him for his faithfulness. Praise him for his awesomeness. And you will end up, and the time will go by, and you're like, where did all the time go by? Because you were just sitting in the presence with the Lord, worshiping him, giving glory and praise of which is a great name. Then you will find your words pouring out of your heart as you express to him your desires, your hopes, your aspirations, your concerns. And it will be such a sweet, sweet time. We see that in the first part of the example of this prayer, of what Jesus told his disciples to do the same thing. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's acknowledging who God is and stating that his name is great. Verse 28 in Genesis 24 says, Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca, who had a brother whose name was Laban. Every time you hear Laban, or read it, boo, hiss, ah. Laban ran out to, toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. If you were to read back through those two verses, verses 29 and 30, they seem a bit out of order, do they not? For verse 29, we have Laban ran to the man to the spring. And then in verse 30, we have Laban saw and he heard, and then he went to the man. What's going on here? Well, Gordon Winham, in his excellent commentary in Genesis, helped pointed this out. That what he's doing is that the author is directing our attention to the ulterior motives of Laban, which we will see again later on in Genesis. Hence, when you hear Laban, you boo and you hiss and you holler. Notice that Laban saw the ring, and he saw the bracelets, and he saw this entourage with all the camels thus providing us with the character development, or rather, the lack of character development in Laban. In verse 31, Laban says, Come in, O blessed of Yahweh. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So a man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Again, giving us other textual clues that there were more than other than the unmanned servant on this journey to Nahor. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. 
This is showing us the dedication to the mission that the unnamed servant has. And we'll have to wait until next week to hear the rest of this narrative. So I invite you to come back next week to hear this. So as we come to the midpoint of this chapter, I hope that you have seen that in through these characters, these types that find their true and complete fulfillment in Christ. That Abraham points us to God, the Father. Isaac is Jesus, the Son, the unnamed spirit, unnamed messenger as the Holy Spirit, and Rebecca as the bride of Christ. Abraham sends out that unnamed messenger who is sent out on behalf of the master for the promised son, to prepare a bride for the son, where the bride is that those who accept Jesus Christ are brought into the promise and are brought into the promised land where the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the bride, to those that choose to accept him and come along with him on a journey that points him to the Son. Just as the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father to be a witness about the Son. For as John tells us, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So like the gold given to Rebecca as a deposit, a down payment of what she will ultimately receive, it's similar to those that accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. If you have not received this free gift, this free deposit from the Father, today is a day for you to accept that. Because we do not know when the time in which we will pass that threshold from this earth and step into eternity. The time in which we will face God himself, see him as he is, face to face. And the question will be asked, what have you done with my son? What have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? Enter then into the joy and rest if you have not accepted my Lord, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, depart from me. Eternal separation for the one who created your soul to have an everlasting relationship with him for eternity will say, depart from me. Brothers and sisters, I don't want anyone, when they come to that day, to have that answer given to you. So please, <laughs> make that decision. Recognize the fact that you are in desperate need of a Savior. There's nothing you can do to enter heaven on your own other than and through the blood of Jesus Christ. So today is the day of salvation. If you have questions about it, I'd love to talk with you. Don't leave here before talking about it. Or talk with someone else that's around that you may know and you may have come with. So I hope you've been encouraged. Hopefully you have found and developed a deeper love for God's word and the awesomeness that's contained in it and the awesome character of our great God that we serve who intimately is aware of each of us in each of our lives. All right. Maranatha.